Are you ready for God's word today? All right, grab your Bibles and I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. I'm going to read a verse from 2 Timothy and then we're going to jump to Proverbs. We've been in a series of messages that we called the Bible series. And we've just been talking about questions and topics about the Bible that I think are relevant to our culture today. Like, can we trust the Bible? Where did we get the Bible? Do we have the right Bible? If you haven't been tracking with us in this series, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those messages over and over and over again, because what I'm doing a little differently in this series is I'm giving you a lot of information, but it's really information that you need to have. And then we'll do inspiration kind of at the end. That's where we'll encourage at the end. But I want you to have this information. I want you to know we can trust the Bible. It's historically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. We talked scientifically accurate. We talked about all that because the word of God has been under attack since Genesis chapter three. It will be under attack for the rest of your life, for the rest of my life. And what the enemy knows that if he can undermine the word of God, we fall every time. That's what we learn in Genesis 3. Did God really say? And as soon as Adam and Eve questioned the word of God, they fell. And I want you to know in your life, as soon as he can get you to question what the word of God says, the authority of the word of God, then he has got you set up to fall. So for me, that's why I'm doing this series to say, no, the Bible is sure. The Bible is true. The Bible is trustworthy, right? And then to give you the information to combat the lies of our culture, which ultimately come from the enemy. Are you tracking with me? So I want you to make sure that you listen to these, whether you listen on Spotify or podcast or, or, or YouTube or wherever, I want you to listen to all the messages. So we're in, uh, I'm, we're going to go to Proverbs chapter two. I'm going to read one verse here uh, from second Timothy uh, chapter two, verse 15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. King James says, study to show yourself. Um, NIV says, do your best. And so, but, but King James says, study to show yourself approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. So here's what Paul's telling Timothy. Do your best to understand this book. My question to you this morning, which is a question of reflection, and that question is, are you doing your best to understand this book? Right? Are you doing your best to understand this book? Because we will, you know, I'll talk to people and they're like, oh, pastor, I read all the Harry Potter books. They are so good. That's wonderful. But Harry Potter books won't save you. You know, if you, if you want to read Harry Potter, now, if you're people and you think Harry Potter's of the devil, I don't have time to get up in all that. I'm just saying people told me they read all the Harry Potter books. Don't send me an email about Harry Potter. My question is, though, but are you doing your best to study this? Are you doing your best to understand this? Because this makes one wise to the saving of your soul, according to the word of God. And so, so that's what Paul's telling Timothy. You better do your best to understand this. Do your best to understand this. And so today, I want to talk about how do you study the Bible? That's, remember, every message is a question. The question we're asking today is, how do you study the Bible? But I kind of put this, this is a question I've been asked many times. People have literally said, Pastor, how do you study the Bible? So I just use your question as the title. How do you study the Bible? I'm going to tell you how I study the Bible today. Um, but, but before we dive into that, I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 2. 
Because believe it or not, Proverbs chapter 2 is about studying the Bible. Look, look at what Proverbs chapter 2 says. My son, this is, I mean, this is Solomon, but you could just as easily say it's God. Every, every word from God or every scripture is what God breathed. So this is from God to you. My son, if you accept my words and store up your commands within you. Look at that. If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Well, we're now talking about studying the Bible. Notice today I didn't say, how, the question wasn't how do you read the Bible? The question is how do you study the Bible? I think we have a lot of people reading the Bible, but the problem we have with a lot of people in our culture not understanding the Bible is not because they're not reading, it's because they're not studying, they're two different things. And that's why I want to talk about studying the Bible today. Because he said this, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands and you turn your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. And if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, right? Notice this, there's some effort involved in this. Then, I have that word circle, uh, circled in, in my Bible, then. Because he's saying if I do these things, something else is going to happen. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And then you will find the knowledge of God. And then the Lord will give you wisdom. And from his mouth, then from his mouth will come knowledge and understanding. And then he holds victory in store for the upright. And then he's a shield to those who walk, whose walk is blameless. And then he guards the course of the just and protects the way of the faithful ones. And then you will understand what is right and just and fair and then you'll know what every good path is for then wisdom will enter your heart and then knowledge will be present in your soul. Do you see, that's why I circle then because you can put then before each of those statements. In other words, he's saying if you apply your heart to understanding, if you cry aloud for insight, if you dig in the word of God looking for treasure, then, then, then you're gonna understand, you're gonna have wisdom, you're gonna have knowledge, right? Then you're gonna walk in victory. Then you're gonna have a shield. Then you're gonna be blameless. Then he's gonna guard the course of your life. Then he's gonna protect you and be faithful to you. Then you're gonna understand what is just. Then you're gonna know what is every good path. Then you're going to have wisdom in your heart and then you're going to have knowledge in your soul. So why do I study the Bible? Well, Proverbs Sol Solomon told me. He just told me why I study the Bible, right? In, in fact, last week I told you why we should study the Bible just as kind of just a teaser, if you will. But I said, we study the Bible because we live by it and we study the Bible because we're going to be judged by it, right? And so today, Today, if I were going to tell you why you study the Bible, now I'm going to answer the question, how do you study the Bible? If I was going to ask you the question, answer the question, why do you study the Bible? Let me give you four really quickly. Number one, faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. In other words, if I want to be a man and woman of faith, if I want to have strong faith, I'm not going to have faith with my Bible closed. You will, I'm going to say it again very clearly. You will not have faith with your Bible closed. Number two, transformation. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man cleanse his way except by holding to your truth, your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. In other words, the word of God transforms us from the inside out. Number three, guidance. In other words, how do I know which way to go? How do I know the decisions to make? Well, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What about, what about success? Is there, is, let me just say it this way. Is there anyone in here today or even watching online, you can throw it in the chat if you want to. But anyone in here today and you'd say, Pastor, no matter what, I do not want to be successful. Pastor, please, I don't want to be successful in my business. I don't want to be successful in my job. I don't want to be successful in my marriage, my relationships. I don't want to be successful as a parent or as a student. Pastor, please, Lord, please, I don't want to be successful. Anybody feel that way today? 
Okay, that's good because according to the Bible, it gives you success. Joshua 1.8 says, this book of the law will not depart out of your mouth, but you'll meditate on it day and night to, to be careful to do all that's observed in it. And then will you make your way prosperous and then will you have good success. So don't read the Bible if you don't want to succeed. But if you want to be successful, you study the Word of God. So why do we study the Word of God? So today we're going to answer the question, how do you study the Word of God? So I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. Are you ready? God, we thank you so much for the word of God. And God, thank you that you didn't leave us alone to try to figure it out. But Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us and he guides us into all truth. And the anointing from God teaches us today. That's your word. So Lord, today as we open the word, we're not alone in that. Holy Spirit, open the word for us. Speak to us. Give us revelation and insight in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. So here's what I'm going to do today that's going to be fun and different. If you were to go to Bible school or, you know, to a university and you wanted a bachelor's degree in some type of church ministries or even a bachelor's degree in some theological study, you're going to take a class essentially on whether it's homiletics, hermeneutics, or, or exegetical Bible study, or whatever the case may be, you're going to take a class on that. I'm going to give you a seminary class in 40 minutes, because does anybody know how to debone a chicken? I was raised in the country, so we know how to debone chickens. In other words, I took all the bones out, and I'm just going to give you the chicken, right? And so because of that, I'm not going to need a whole semester. I'm going to give you the basic working principles that you can use today to study the Bible in the next 40 minutes. And I'm going to do it by, I'm actually going to do it with you, but we're going to take a passage that to me sometimes is misinterpreted. In fact, I've heard it preached wrongly many times by pastors, quite frankly. And we're going to try to figure out what it means. That's, we're going to study it together. Are you ready? So Mark chapter 8, if you're, so two things, turn to, turn to Mark chapter 8 if you have a Bible. We are going to put the verses on the screen, but it'd be so cool if you had your Bible. And number two, take notes if you have pen and paper. Now, if you don't have pen and paper, steal some from a friend because you need to take notes. In fact, can I just say every Sunday, if you're going to spend time to be here, you ought to take notes. Because every Sunday, God can speak and you can write something down. And how cool would it be at the end of the year to have 52 words from God written down in a journal for you to go back and look through? Wouldn't that be amazing? Right? So I want you to write it down. Number three, you can use your phone to write it down. But if you open Instagram, the Lord will strike your phone dead. Okay? All right. Just so we're clear. All right. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, everybody. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It says, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a, lie, a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking. King James says, I see people as trees walking. Verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, everybody really clear on what that means? I, I never forget, in case you've heard it, I'll go ahead and tell you this. But I heard this preach one time. See, even with Jesus, it doesn't always work the first time. So keep trying. 
keep praying. Well, now I like the message, keep praying. In fact, uh, we can go to Luke 18 and preach a whole message about the persistence of prayer. There are reasons to persist in prayer. Absolutely. We can see that in the book of Daniel. There are reasons to persist in prayer. But that's not what this passage means. That's not, it didn't, it wasn't like where they said even healing is, and then they've argued, well, this is a text for progressive healing. Well, while I believe healing can be gradual and progressive, whereas miracles are instantaneous, I, I, I could, in other words, I don't necessarily have a problem with the application, but their interpretation is wrong. There are other places in the Bible we could go to where that, the interpretation would be accurate and the application would be accurate, but that's not, that's not here. So I, I want to take this text and I want us to look at it together and try to figure out why is this in the Bible? Because you understand, according to John, everything that Jesus did, all the works of Jesus, the, the messages of Jesus, even the works of the disciples, we don't have all of that in the Bible. We know all scripture is God breathed. So we know everything we have in the Bible, God wanted us to have, but there were things Jesus did and things that happened that did not get included in the canonical record or in scripture. And so when I look at scripture, I start with, I wonder why he wanted this in there. Like God wanted this in there. I wonder why. And that's where you start with Bible studies. You start with a good curiosity. Now, I want to say one more thing before we dive in. Let me tell you how to spell Bible study. Let me tell you how to spell it. T-I-M-E. Meaning a lot of people, listen, I don't have any problem with, you know, getting a verse for the day if you have one text to you or something like that. I think those are wonderful. If you have a devotion where they take a little verse every day and, and give you something encouraging, nothing wrong with that. That's not studying the Bible. That's reading the Bible. Um, we need to study the Bible. That's what we're talking about today. We need to study the Bible because studying the Bible is transformational. Having a verse of the day, Paul, the Apostle Paul would call that the milk of the word. Like when you just get a little, you know, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave us, oh God, thank you today that you love me and love the world. That's like milk of the word, right? But Paul said we need to desire spiritual food that is meat. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. We need to grow up and our appetites need to increase to where we're no longer trying to be sustained on milk, but we're digging in with a fork and a knife because there's some filet there, right? And it was cooked medium rare because if you overcook it, it's a burnt sacrifice. Once we get to <laughs> medium, medium well, that's no longer steak. You destroyed that thing. You desecrated it. So, but at medium rare, angels sing and God himself sheds a tear. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, that is wonderful. When God made the cow, that's what he made it for. And so, but we need to grow and we need to desire more food. We need, we need to desire steak and potatoes. You can, you can get by on milk as you're learning, but at some point you got to transition over to where I'm not just reading the Bible, I'm studying it. Now I'm not relying on someone else telling me what it says. I'm figuring out what it says for me. Are you with me? And that's just the process of maturity. So I'm going to give you my three points, and then we're going to walk through them together so you can write these down because it's really just the steps in studying the Bible. So observation, interpretation, application. Observation, interpretation, application. And I put a question with each one. And as we walk through there together, I'll give you the question. So observation, interpretation, and application. So we're going to take this text together. And we're just going to try to figure out what it means. So number one, observation. So write this down under observation. It's just simply, what do I see? 
What do I see? Maybe if you're the older generation, you remember Columbo, right? Columbo and that trench coat and that cigar, you know, and he would ask questions many times. He kind of already knew the answers, but he would ask questions and, and he would talk to the people and he'd just walk, you know, I wonder why he did this. And I wonder why, you know, if they were doing this and I wonder why this is Columbo. Now, if you're a younger generation, just think about CSI. Okay, just pick your favorite CSI and, and just, you know, go with that, all right? But the point is, in observation, we want to try to figure out what do we see in the text. In fact, Psalm 119.18 gives us a great prayer to pray as we approach the Word of God. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. So when we approach the text, we may start with, God, open my eyes that I can see wonderful things in your Word today. So observation, let me give you the questions of observation. And these are the obvious, but this is where we start. Number one, write this down. First question, who? Who? When we're approaching a text, we want to ask the question, who? Who is in it? What do we know about them? Right? And so, so in this text, so who do we have in this text? Well, we have, you know, the village people, you know, YMCA, right? Uh, we have the village people, and we have a blind man, and we have Jesus. And even though it wasn't in the verses that we read, I'll, I'll go ahead and fill in some of the blanks because of what I know. And if you were to read the whole chapter, um, then you'd understand the disciples are there too. So we have the village people, YMCA, and then we have the blind man. Right? <laughs> That's Aerosmith. I don't know. I met a blind man who taught me how to see. Anyways, don't act like you don't like Aerosmith. <laughs> like, we're in church. You don't lie. Um, so we have, the, we have the, the village people, the blind man, Jesus, and the disciples. And so that's who's in, in the text. Then, then we ask the question, well, what? In other words, what is happening? What is happening? right? Again, God put it in there for a reason. So what is happening? And so we're, we're looking for things like, is, like, is Jesus explaining something? Is, is there an explanation? Like the kingdom of heaven is like, so now he's given us an explanation, right? Um, is there a command? Um, is there a cause and, and an effect? Or, or um, is there a correction? Or is it just some, uh, an event, something that happens. So in our text, there's an event, right? And the event is someone got healed. So, so we ask who, and then we ask what? So in Mark chapter eight, where we're reading, the people, the village people brought the blind man to Jesus and Jesus healed him. So this is telling us about an event that happened. Then the third question of observation is when? In other words, it, sometimes this is very relevant and sometimes it's not, but sometimes it'll say the third watch of the night or, you know, the, the, the third hour of the morning or, you know, it gives you a time of day. Sometimes it's at night, sometimes it, like Nicodemus, he came at night. Well, that, that, if you study that passage, you understand why. I don't have to go into all that. Um, and then, you know, when? So we're asking when, like, is there a year? Is it 50 days after Passover? Whatever it is, is there a time given? In, in our particular passage, we know it happens at daytime. And, and really, we're not given a lot of specific when information. Now, if we apply what we already know, because this is a synoptic gospel, meaning that 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic or similar gospels, we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke really kind of go from the birth of Jesus and they kind of jump to the last year of Jesus' ministry. So predominantly his Galilean ministry, uh, which is like around the Sea of Galilee. So because this is Mark 8 and we know John's been beheaded. So if you kind of know your history or you just understand the Synoptic Gospels, you know it's the last year of Jesus' ministry. So, so we know this is the third year of Jesus' ministry, if you will. This falls somewhere in there. And, and we know it was daytime. That's, that's most of what we know from the text right? And then the next question of observation is where? Well, is there a location given? Well, in our text, there is a location mentioned, but they leave that location. In other words, the village people were from Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Well, what is Bethsaida? Where is Bethsaida? Is that relevant? Well, I don't know, but let me give you some pro tips really quickly. Pause here for the pro tips. Number one, many of you say, well, Pastor, I don't have a Bible software. Well, you can get one. Logos has an entry uh, a level, it's an entry level Bible software that you can get. I use Logos. I just kind of have a really souped up version, but you can get an entry level version. It's not that expensive. You really want to invest uh, in Bible study, uh, but also you have Google. And everything on, on the internet is obviously not true. But if I want to know about Bethsaida, I can Google first century Bethsaida and it will actually tell me about first century Bethsaida. Right? So I can actually find out from Google that it's a fishing village on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Like I can find that out. If I know my Bible, then I know Philip, Andrew, um, and Peter were all from uh, Bethsaida originally. That that's, that's where they were all born and from. Like, I, I know that. So it's Bethsaida. It's a fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Andrew and Philip are from there. But I also know this if I know my Bible, if I've been reading. So again, you have to apply what you know, but you can Google things the Bible says about Bethsaida. You know what I'm saying? You really can put that in Google pro tip. Just like you can do a topical study almost through Google because if you put in there, you know, scriptures about the love of God. Well, it, there's going to give you a couple of websites where you click and they're just, you can put any topic in and, and it won't tell you what the passages mean, but it'll give you all the passages, or it'll give you, I oh, shouldn't say all, but they'll give you a lot of passages about that particular topic or that particular word or whatever the case may be. And all that's free and you have it in the palm of your hand, just so you know. So um, is there a location? Well, Bethsaida's fishing village. And we know it was one of the um, condemned cities. We know it was one of the, the cities that Jesus condemned. Uh, it, along with uh, Chorazin, um, was, was the other, I always say Chorazin. It's really, well, it technically is kind of pronounced Chorazin. Um, <laughs> Chorazin, Chorazins. Anyways, um, but there are two cities where Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. Had the miracles that were done in you been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented and turned to God, but you refused. So if we know that, because if you're asking questions about the passage, you might ask the question, why did Jesus take the blind man out of the village and heal him and then tell him not to go back into the village? Well, you know, it's because the village was condemned because they had seen many miracles and turned their back on God. And God said, I'm not going to give you any more miracles. So he wanted to heal the blind man but he didn't, he didn't want to transgress what had already been spoken. And so he has to take him out of the village to heal him. And then he says, don't go back in the village and tell them what I did. Just go home to your family. Let your family be saved. Are you with me? But we, we find all that out. Why? Because we just ask questions. 
And then the last question of observation is why? In other words, why is this included? So again, there's a reason why God put this in the, the Bible. Well, why? So I always say, well, what is the unique thing about this passage? What's the unique thing? And there are some unique things, but very gener generally 30,000 foot view, the main thing this passage we just read is about is a miracle. A blind man receives his sight. So to me, whatever we're going to interpret about this passage, it has to do with that blind man because that's what's significant. The village people, they're not named. We're not, we don't really see a lot of interaction there. Jesus, we have a lot going on with Jesus. We have a lot going on with the disciples. The disciples are kind of silent in this text. What really it comes down to is Jesus healing a blind man. So probably the reason we have these verses, the reason Mark gives us these verses, it has something to do with this blind man. He's trying to tell us something about the blind man. Are, are you with me? Everybody with me? All right. So, so we have observed the text and we say, well, significant, the significance of the text probably has something to do with what's going on with this blind man. Everybody with me, right? All right, that gives us number two, interpretation. In other words, what does this mean? Jesus healed a blind man. What does this mean? Well, very generally, we could say, well, Jesus had power to heal. And we wouldn't be wrong with that, right? Jesus has power to heal. Jesus, Jesus heals blind people. We know it's one of the seven signs of the Messiah that he'll give sight to the blind. So this miracle tells us again that Jesus is the Messiah. These are very general interpretations that are very easy to find, very easy to come to, very easy to see. Are you with me? right? But we want to drill down into this passage because remember, the Bible so many times is like the ocean. You can skid across it. You can snorkel. You know, have you ever been snorkeling where you stay kind of on the top, you know, and you kind of look down? Or you can strap on a tank and you can go scuba diving, maybe get a hundred feet down. Are you with me? Or you can get in a submarine and go down there where all the big monsters are. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's kind of how the Bible is. Are you with me? So very generally, Jesus can heal the blind. It's one of the seven signs of Messiah that we see from Isaiah 63 in Luke chapter 4. So Jesus is very clearly the Messiah. We could take that away from it. All of that would be accurate, but we want to drill down. We don't want to just skim across the surface. We want to put on some tanks today, everybody. We want to go down there and swim with the little fishes ourselves, all right? So in interpretation, we're asking the question, but what does this mean? What does this mean? And what we understand is seeing precedes understanding. That's why, listen, observation is very important. The more you observe, the more you can understand. So the better you are at asking the questions about the text, right? Asking the questions about the text, the more you're going to understand. Because it's going to, how many know, the questions, I always say, if you're thinking about mining for gold, the questions tell you where to dig. Right? In this passage, I don't necessarily need to dig a lot on, on Bethsaida. I kind of understand the relevance of that. I don't have to dig a lot on the village people, right? The blind man, I'm not given a name. I'm not given a lot. There's not a lot I can dig just on that individual person, but the miracle, I can dig on that. Um, that seems to be the focus. So healing the blind and Jesus and the blind man and what he, the interaction there, that's probably where I need to dig. And I know that because I ask questions. So the more you see, the better you question. The better you question, the more you understand. Are you with me? So let me give you the five C's of interpretation, all right? Give you the five C's of interpretation. We'll have to go pretty fast. Are you ready? Number one, content. In other words, I just need to be really sure I know what's in this text. So I want to read and reread and read again, right? I want the details of the passage. Are there things being repeated? Is a word being repeated? 
Is there a comparison being made? Is there something being contrasted with something else? Was there a cause and then an effect? Are there questions that are being asked and answers that are being given? Uh, you know, is there something being explained? Is there a command being given? Anything like that. I want the details of the passage. In Mark chapter 8, it's very clearly what we've said. The village people bring the blind man to Jesus. They beg him to heal him. Jesus takes him out of the village. Jesus uses saliva. That's, that's intriguing, right? I mean, got to think about it. And then Jesus touched the blind man once. What do you see? I see men as trees. He touched him again. And it says that his sight was restored and he saw clearly. Um, but yet Jesus didn't ask him. He just, the, narrative, the narrator tells us that. Jesus didn't ask him, did it work that time? It wasn't that kind of thing. So that's what we have in the content. Next is context. Context, right? Um, context is what happens before, what happens after. A text without a context is a pretext, meaning this is where a lot of people get things wrong is they just pull a verse out and, and they say, well, here's what the verse means. Well, th to understand the verse, I have to understand the context in which it was written. Good interpretation looks at not only the context, but many times the literary styling. See, the Bible is literally written, but is not interpreted always literally. Did you hear what I said? It was literally written, but is not always interpreted literally. So for me to interpret the Bible, I have to understand is, what is the literary form? Is it poetry or a command? Because I interpret those differently. What was the writer writing, right? Is it hyperbole? Is it prose? Like, what is the literary style? Is it metaphoric, right? Because when Jesus says, love one another, that's not a metaphor. Are you with me? That's love one another. But when Jesus says, I am a door, he's not saying I have hinges and a doorknob. He's saying, no, metaphorically, I'm the only way to God. So, to, so some people say, well, is the Bible literal? Is it, is it metaphoric? You know, how do we study? Well, to study the Bible, I need to understand, is it a narrative? Is it poetry? Like, I need to understand that when I'm interpreting. So when I'm looking at the context, part of that is the literary styling. Are, are you with me? In this particular passage, it's a narrative. Mark is telling us eyewitness information. He's giving us a narrative. He is not giving us necessarily metaphoric speech. He's not writing poetry. Are you with me? Everybody clear? Yes. Okay, thank you. So what happens before and after? I'm going to have to go kind of fast, but we're going to get there together. Are you ready? Number one, Jesus was moving. If you go back, so a lot of times, understand this, chapters and verses were not put in by the writers or by God. They were put in by well-intentioned men to help us find different places in the Bible, right? So when I said, turn with me to Mark chapter 8, no matter the version of the Bible you had, when it was printed, who it was printed by, you could find the same place in the Bible that I was in. Are you with me? But Mark didn't put, he wasn't writing and then said, okay, chapter eight. Are you with me? So sometimes, most of the time, when I'm looking for context, I go to the previous chapter. Because sometimes it's, you know, it's a break that made sense to somebody, you know, 400 years ago, but it may not make sense to me today. Does that make sense? Because may depend on, are you with me? In this particular case, we'll just go back to verse one of chapter eight, Okay. 
So verse 1 of chapter 8, Jesus is moved with compassion and feeds 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. This is after the feeding of the 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and the two fish. Are, are you with me? So he'd already done that miracle, so this is a second miracle of feeding a lot of people with day-old bread. Right? So we know that happens. As soon as Jesus finishes feeding 4,000, it really would have been men. We know culturally they counted heads of household or men. Um, so it's 4,000 men. It could have been 12, 15, 20,000 people. So as soon as he's finished, and we know he took up like seven, you know, doggy bags, right? So as soon as he's feeding 4,000 men with seven loaves of bread, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking a sign from him from heaven to test him. You understand what just happened? Jesus took seven loaves of bread, fed 4,000 men. Immediately following that, the Pharisees come to him and say, give us a sign that you're really the Messiah. And he sighed deeply <laughs> in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten. Now it's the narrative. Mark's telling us the narrative. They had forgotten. Remember, Mark gets all of his information from Peter. They left them. They got into the boat again. And when they got the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, Why are you even talking about bread? Do you not perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And he said, and the seven for the 4,000, how many doggy bags did you get out of that? And they said seven. And he said to them, don't you understand? So I just want to ask you right now, don't you understand? Why is he upset? Why is Jesus' feathers ruffled right here? Anybody got it yet? Well, we'll just have to keep looking. And then, then we get to, so, so he's talking about leaven and bread with the disciples in the boat. Gets out of the boat. The village people show up with the blind man. Are you with me? And I just think it'd be so cool. <laughs> Can I just say this? I just think Jesus is cool because he's kind of upset with he's kind of upset with the disciples because they don't get it, and he's kind of irritated with the Pharisees because they don't get it, right? And they're wanting a sign, right? And then he steps out of the boat, holy man of God, Jesus the Messiah, and and the village people bring this blind man to him and say, "Can you do anything?" And Jesus says, "Yeah, I can." <laughs> and I think right about then, I think the disciples freaked out. I'm telling you right now, Thomas looked over and said, Ethel, get your purse. I'm telling you right now. That's what And so Jesus heals this blind man, the passage that we read. And then you know what immediately happens after this? Is Peter confesses he's the Christ. He takes him up to Capernaum, which is just kind of over on a map to the west. And... Um, says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. Only God in heaven could have done that. 
So there's the context. So having done the context, then there's, here's the next C, consultation. Consultation. So this is where I can sort any resources or consult any resource I have. Like a concordance, I can look up blind in the concordance and I can read everywhere the Bible talks about blind, right? Whether it's physically blind or spiritually blind or who was blind, so I can do that. A Bible dictionary, I can look up, you know, Bethsaida, I can look up miracles of the blind, whatever, in a Bible dictionary. I can look on an atlas, and I can see Bethsaida's on that northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I can go to commentaries. Now, my rule on commentaries is I will never read one commentary. I will read at minimum five commentaries if I want to look at a commentary. Because you understand commentaries are just that. They're comments by men. So they're, they're in, they are fallible. They are not the word of God. Are you with me? And so I kind of want to look at the consensus of what are these really smart people? What, you know, what are they agreeing on? And also they're written with their lenses and their persuasions. Like if they're Calvinists or they're Arminianists or whatever the case may be, they may see the scripture that way. So I read five, at minimum five commentaries if I go to a commentary. And many times I'll read 10 or 12. But again, I kind of have a souped up program and I can click through them and read them. And so, um, but the point is, consult a commentary, and there are commentaries available online uh, for free if you want to use those. But this is where I consult other resources. Then the next step is comparison. Comparison, the next C. So this is where I compare this passage with other passages. Please hear this. If you don't get anything else, write this down. The Bible always interprets the Bible. If you want to interpret the Bible, you use the Bible. It is the key that unlocks itself every time. So when I want to study something in the Bible, I try to find somewhere else in the Bible something like this happened. So I may study, were there other blind people healed? And how were they healed? What does the Bible say about blindness or being blind? When's the first time I see blind in the Bible or blindness in the Bible? When in the Old Testament? When in the New Testament? Is there a parallel passage? Does one of the other gospel writers write about this actual event? And can I read their perception or their perspective? Does maybe Paul mention it in one of his epistles? In other words, I want to look at the text individually, but I want to compare it to the corporate text or the total text of the Bible, because if I just look at it here, I can make a mistake. But if, it, but if I let the Bible tell me about the Bible, I let the Bible interpret the Bible and I follow it all the way through the Bible, I got a really good chance of getting this right. Does that make sense? Remember, and I forgot to say this, there's a difference between eisegetical and exegetical study exegetical means I'm going to go to it without an agenda and get the truth from it. I'm going to try to understand the truth of it. Eisegetical study means I, 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 I. I'm going to start with what I want it to say and then go to the Bible and try to make it say that. There is a lot of eisegetical interpretation in our culture today, especially on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube, and it's horrible. And people will proclaim it like it is the word of God. And I'm like, that is not the word of God. You started with what you wanted to be said and you went to God and manipulated his words to make it line up with what you wanted. That's not even what the text means. Are you with me? So when we go, we wanna say, God, 
what, exegetically, God, we want to pull out your truth. We want to understand your truth. We, we want to mine it out. So when we're comparing it, we're looking at God's word and we're letting God bring the meaning out. That's the point. Are, you see what I'm saying? I'm not trying to read in the meaning. I'm trying to pull out the meaning. And that's why I compare the word of God to the word of God and let the Bible interpret the Bible. Are, are you with me? The next C is culture. So I need to understand when I'm reading the New Testament, I'm not reading 21st century American culture. Right? These people spoke Aramaic. Right? Or they could have been speaking Aramaic. They could have been speaking Greek. They could have been speaking Hebrew. Are you with me? They lived in first century Judaism, not 21st century Americanism. So I need to understand what about their culture? How did they practice? What did they do? Why were certain things important? What did these things mean? Like for instance, you know, growing up, I remember in the 80s, we would have, they would talk about washing each other's feet and they would sometimes have a foot washing service in, in the church where I grew up in. And what that meant was we were humbling ourselves and serving one another. And, and we would take it from the Bible. Now, I don't, I, that is for real an application, but you understand in first century Judaism, everybody got their feet washed because they wore sandals on dirt streets where animals defecated. So when your guest came in, like maybe you're those people, like when people come to your house, you're like, take your shoes off. Well, taking their shoes off didn't always solve the problem. So you washed your guest's feet because A, you didn't want your house to stink and B, you wanted to honor your guests. Okay, that's first century Jewish culture. Are you, are you with me? The reason I say this because I was watching and it, it went viral. There was a young man who, I don't know if he's a self-proclaimed pastor or preacher or teacher or whatever, but he starts his video with, did you know, and he's going, he's going to reference John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, and he starts the video with, did you know Jesus helped one of his friends come out? Now, if you understand 21st century idioms, you know come out is something someone does when they were a secret, uh, maybe queer, gay, homosexual, bi, um, and they decided to let everybody know they came out, right? And he reads John chapter 11 where Jesus tells Lazarus, come out. And he says, see, even Jesus helped his friends come out. Now, there is nothing in the Bible anywhere about Jesus ever, ever at all condoning, celebrating, encouraging, validating or, or, uh, homosexuality at all. There is nothing in the biblical record that would ever infer that Lazarus was actually homosexual, right? Nothing at all in Scripture. But here's really what was grotesque about the text is we used a first century, I'm sorry, a 21st century American idiom and took it back into first century Judaism, which would have been in Aramaic because more than likely when Jesus called Lazarus out, he was speaking in Aramaic, not English. And he didn't say come out. He said whatever the Aramaic is for come out of the tomb. And how gross is it to the text to take a 21st century idiom that was, didn't even exist? You realize come out 
I mean, we, it, didn't even, even, it didn't even exist back then. The whole idea of it didn't exist back then. But to take a 21st century hymn, apply it to first century Jewish culture, and then to say Jesus, who was actually speaking Aramaic, was actually using a 21st century English idiom, and then apply that to the text is a gross, it was grossly eisegetical is what it is. It's getting the Bible to say what I want to say. Now, if you want an application, it is true. Jesus will help you come out. He will help you come out of sin. He will help you come out of sickness. And he will help you come out of death. And whatever binds you and holds you in darkness, whether it's homosexuality or drug addiction, he will help you come out of it. Are you with me? So Jesus will never leave you in homosexuality. He will never leave you in adultery. He will never leave you in addiction. He will never leave you in depression. If you will hear, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he will call us all out of sin and darkness. Are you with me? That's how you exegete the passage. That's how you interpret it, not the other way around. So it's important we understand the culture. Um, that, I feel better now. So in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is spitting. Well, what is Jewish culture? Well, the Greeks believed uh, saliva had medicinal pro properties, but the Jews didn't. For Jews, it was a sign of disgust, disgrace, or denouncing. In other words, it was disgusting. If someone spit, so you got to think about it. When the disciples are standing there and the village people come out and say, can you heal the blind man? All of a sudden, Jesus is like, you know, it's like, what in the world? Are you with me? So, so what does, this, what does this mean? What does this passage mean? What does this passage mean? So let me break it down. As we walk through it, what, what seemed to be sticking out about this passage was the way the miracle happened. There, for instance, Jesus does use saliva three times in miracles. So if you studied and let the Bible speak to the Bible, you'd find that there's one time where there's a man with a speech impediment who's also deaf and Jesus spits and puts it on his tongue and it heals him. So there's, there's that one. John chapter 9 talks about a blind man where Jesus spit in the clay and then made mud and put it on his eyes and then told him to go wash in the pool. And he was healed. So there are two other times Jesus used a spit, one with a blind man, but none of it looked like this. What is unique about this? Remember, what's different about this? What's the significance of this? Well, it's the blind man, but it's the fact that Jesus spits, touches his eyes, and then says, what do you see? Like, did it work? Because how many know Jesus was never really in doubt when he was performing miracles? There's no other miracle where Jesus said, hey, did it work? <laughs> like, you know, doctors practice, Jesus did not. Are you with me? So, so then he said, I see men as trees. And then Jesus touched his eyes again. And then the narrator, uh, who really would have been Peter talking to Mark, but it's Mark's narration that he got from Peter, says, well, then he saw clearly, but Jesus didn't ask him. Notice Jesus didn't say, did it work that time? If not, I'll spit and try it again. So it's interesting. So, so what's interesting about this? Well, the man, the first time Jesus spits, touches his eyes, and, Jesus, and the man says, I see men as trees. I see ministries. So in my mind, I'm wondering, is there anywhere else in the Bible that talks about men as trees? Because I'm trying to figure out what this man saw when he first saw something, but it wasn't clear. What did he say? I saw men as trees. Well, in my mind, I thought men as trees. Now, if you read the Bible and study the Bible enough, your, your own brain will take you to places in the Bible because I thought, well, I immediately know one place where it talks about men as trees. Psalm 1 
It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in season whose leaf does, also does not wither and whatever he does will prosper. And I thought, okay, here's a place where it says a man is like a tree. That's interesting. And then I thought, well, Jeremiah 17 says those who trust in the Lord will be called trees of righteousness. And then I thought, well, Psalm 52 says, David said, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. And then Psalm 92 says, the righteous flourish like palm trees. Isaiah 55, 12 says, all the trees of the field clap their hands, but it's not talking about the trees of the field. It's talking about God's people, but it's likening them to trees in a field and they're clapping hands. And we know that trees don't typically have hands to clap. And then I know Zechariah, when it talks about the two witnesses from Revelation, Zechariah calls them olive trees. And so I thought, okay, I see men like trees. And what I know is the Bible is a spiritual book, and we're going to talk about this next week, and it has spiritual symbolism, meaning that, for instance, sometimes when the Bible talks about oil, it's really talking about the Holy Spirit, right? And when the Bible talks about women, a lot of times it's actually talking about the church, who's the bride of Christ. Are you with me? So when the Bible talks sometimes about the people of God, it calls them trees. Spiritually, they look like trees. So now what's going on in the text? Jesus has compassion and feeds a multitude with bread. Immediately, the Pharisees say, show us a sign that we can see to prove you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm not going to show you a sign. I've already done it. And this is what he says, having eyes, you don't see. Then he gets into the boat and, he, and the disciples are doing whatever disciples do in the boat, playing cards, whatever. And Jesus is deep in thought. And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Leaven in the Bible is influence. And Jesus said it just takes a little bit of their influence to work all the way through the dough. That's why he calls it leaven. Right? He also talks about the leaven of the kingdom of God, meaning it's not so much leaven's bad. Leaven is the picture, it's the analogy that it just takes a little bit to work through. Are you with me? And when he says that, the disciples say, we should have brought bread. And Jesus is like, Guys, were you there like two chapters earlier, Mark 6, I think it's where I fed 5,000 with five loaves? Were you there just a few minutes ago where I fed 4,000 with seven loaves? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, and you still don't get it? In other words, guys, if I wanted bread, you have one loaf. That's enough for several cities. I can whip up some bread, guys. I'm not talking about bread. How is it that you're so hard of heart you don't understand? And then he gets out of the boat and the village people come singing YMCA with a blind man. Now, what were we talking about was the problem with the Pharisees? They wanted to see, but they were blind. Jesus said, you have eyes and you can't see. Then in the boat, he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees who are blind, not physically, spiritually. 
And then it's like an illustrated opportunity or an opportunity for an illustrated sermon. They get out and there's a blind man and Jesus is like, y'all pay attention. And he spits. Now you have to understand, as soon as he started to spit, Jewish culture, they like, this is disgraceful, disgusting. He is denouncing something. And then he touches his blindness. He spits on the blind eyes and then says, what do you see? And he says, I see men like trees. And then he touches him again. Here's what happened. Here's what Jesus did. He said, spiritual blindness is disgusting. He spit on his blindness because he was irritated with the disciples and irritated with the Pharisees. So he, he was disgusted that they still couldn't see no matter how many miracles he did. And he spit on the blindness and the first time he opened his spiritual eyes. That's why he saw men as trees. And then he opened his physical eyes and that's why I could see clearly now the rain was gone. And then he takes the disciples aside and says, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And this is what Jesus said. You didn't see that with physical eyes. You saw that with spiritual eyes. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father in heaven did. In other words, you didn't see it with natural sight. You saw it with spiritual sight. So what's the interpretation? Jesus gives us spiritual sight. Number three, application then. So how does this work? How does this work? Jesus gives a spiritual sight. How does this work? Well, let me give you the points of application. I got to hurry. Number one, you have to know the truth. So application is built on interpretation. Typically, really, I say there's just one interpretation to the passage, but there could be many applications. One interpretation, many applications. So know the truth. Number three, relate the truth. So let me give you three ways to relate this truth. Ready? Number one, only Jesus gives spiritual sight. Right, John 9.39 is kind of a parallel passage. It's talking about spiritual sight. In fact, in John chapter 9, there's another blind man healed, ironically. And Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into this world. So the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In other words, the Pharisees who think they see are going to become blind. But the people who are blind, I'm going to help them see. He's not talking about physical sight. He's talking about spiritual sight. So only Jesus gives spiritual sight. And here's the thing. I need spiritual sight to understand the meaning of life, to understand the meaning of my life, to understand my purpose, to understand my destiny, to understand what's going on in the world around me. I don't just need physical sight. I need spiritual sight. And there's only one person who can give spiritual sight and that is Jesus. Here's the second application. Pride will keep you blind. In John 9, verse 40, continuing on, it says, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In other words, as long as you're gonna rely on yourself, I can't heal you. As long as you're gonna tell me you can see, I can't help you see, you're gonna be blind. And here's why you're gonna be blind, because you have pride. In other words, you're relying on yourself. So what's the application? Any area where I'm relying on myself more than Jesus, I'm blind. I can't see. Let me give you one really quickly. Years ago, I was in a business, uh, I was doing business, I was in a business deal and I made, uh, I was successful, a little bit successful. I had enough success to be dangerous. The only problem was I was 20 and at 20, I don't know how you were in your 20, but when I was 20, I was not smart. 
I, I, in fact, I was just smart enough to be dangerous and just successful enough to be dangerous. So then I was approached by a man at church who had a business proposition and uh, he had a business deal. He's like, hey, I want you to do this deal. The pastor said he was a good guy. And to be honest, I knew, because this is what I'd previously done, I knew I needed to pray, ask God to see the deal clearly, ask other people, other business guys, what they thought about the deal. In other words, I needed to seek sight, right? But instead I said, no, I've been successful. I know how to see and I see this is a good deal. That deal cost me a lot of money cost me a lot of money. He was not a man of integrity. He was not a man of character and his business plan was flawed, but I didn't get, I didn't figure any of that out until it was too late. Why? Because I presumed I could see I was prideful in any area where I'm self-reliant or prideful, I'm blind. Are you with me? When we approach finances and say, God, I can't see. I don't know the right way to invest. I don't know the right way to budget. When we approach our marriage and we say, God, I'm not the perfect husband or I'm not the perfect spouse. Show me how to be a better husband, a better spouse. When we approach parenting, God, I don't know how to be a parent. You've given me these little people that look like me and I don't know what to do with them, right? You know, you got to help me. When we approach things as though we're blind, he can help us see. But when we approach things as though we already see, we're going to stay blind line. That's the application. Are you with me? Third application is you can't see until you believe. The Pharisees said, if you'll show us a sign, we'll believe. And Jesus said, if you'll believe, you'll see. So in my life, the way that I see God is by faith. I walk by faith. I live by faith. I, I, I move by faith. And so if I want to see God work in my life, it starts with faith. I don't sit back and say, well, God, when you bless me, I'll tithe. No, I say, God, you know what? If you're God, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to trust you're going to help me see. Well, God, I'll surrender my life if you'll help me get this job. No, I'll surrender my life today, and then you can open my eyes and help me do whatever tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to start with faith because seeing doesn't cause faith. Faith causes me to see. There are two types of people, the people that see God in everything and the people that see God in nothing, and it all comes down to their faith. Are you with me? So know the truth, relate the truth, then meditate on the truth. How do I trust Jesus to open my eyes? Is there any pride or self-reliance that keeps me from seeing? How's my faith and trust in God today? And then how do I practice this? Well, I ask God for spiritual sight. I humble myself and admit the areas where I've not been asking God for spiritual sight, where I've been self-reliant. And then I trust and believe and have faith in God concerning the issues and areas of life so that God can help me see. Very, very, I know it was a lot. You probably need to watch the message again. But this is how you study the Bible. Are you with me? This is how we study the Bible. Observation, interpretation, application. And if you'll take time and do this, you'll grow and you'll understand things you never thought you could understand. Listen, in my life, some of the things that I've been able to teach you and teach others, I didn't understand them. And sometimes I'll be honest, I'm getting ready for a message and I think, wow, this is so good. Now I think that because I realized how blind I was and how God helped me see. But I'm like, I never would have thought, God, I would have understood this passage this way. I never would have thought I'd understood life this way. I never would have thought, but here's why I do, because I sit down with all my little resources and I dig in and I say, I'm going to study the word of God and just figure out what he's saying. And I'm saying, if, if, if I can do that, you can do that. And if you'll study to show yourself approved, 
God will open his word to you and it will transform your life. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me today and let's give God praise and thank him for his faithfulness. And I'm going to ask our prayer team to come and we're a little bit long today, so we're going to move very fast. I'm sorry we went a little bit long, but I know I, I, I squeezed the whole semester into about 50 minutes, so I feel pretty good about that. So prayer team, if you'll come, everyone else, let's bow our heads and, and let's all ask this question. God, what are you saying to me today? What are you saying to me today? And God, I just pray today as we ask that, that you would speak to every person. Lord, a word from you and that they would hear you. And God, I pray more than anything, give us a hunger to study your word. A hunger to study your word, God. Lord, I pray today anyone that needs a relationship with you or has a prayer need, you would draw them to you and help us to minister to them. And God, help us this week as we open your word to understand. God, today we admit without you we're blind. But God, we believe you're the Messiah and you give us sight. Help us to see what we need to see about life. God, about our purpose, our destiny, about what's going on. Just help us to see in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, can you give God praise today? Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church. And I just want to say thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected. And there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app and we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel. And then also, uh, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.